Well, one of the many books on the topic of preaching that I have on my shelves is one edited by Brian Chappell called The Hardest Sermons You'll Ever Have to Preach. It has 25 chapters which deal with the difficulties of having to preach on murder or abortion or at the loss of a child or during national tragedy. The Hardest Sermons You'll Ever Have to Preach. It's probably no surprise that I went looking for that book this week. And yet, surprisingly, I found no chapter on divorce in that book. I'm not sure why. Personally, I don't know if there's a harder topic to preach on than divorce. And I say that having just last Sunday preached on, preached on hell. It's a most difficult topic, and not just for preachers. Most people in this room have some experience with divorce whether directly or indirectly. Most of us in this room have emotion. We have memories, faces that come immediately to mind when we just hear the word divorce. It's a difficult thing to preach on as well because, well, there are different kinds of people here. Different kinds of people need to hear different kinds of things on the topic of divorce. Some need to be confronted about worldly and selfish thinking, and they need to be warned to stop in their tracks and not head towards divorce. Some need to be comforted with God's care after being sinfully hurt and and cast aside by a spouse. Some need to be taught rather methodically what the relevant passages teach. Some today will want to hear whether their divorce or another's divorce was within the parameters permissible by Scripture. Some of us could even be helped to think more deeply about the social dynamics related to divorce. And all of us need to be reminded about the beauty and glory of marriage, God's purposes in marriage, the theological orientation to marriage. Well, we can't do all that in one sermon, at least not well, or to everyone's liking. What we can do, though, is try to table our personal questions and our personal agendas for a bit while we seek to let God speak to us without interruption, without debate, without yeah buts, without playing our inner lawyer, as Paul Tripp likes to say, without focusing on others who might be blamed for divorce. Let us hear from God this morning without suspicion, without resistance, instead openly and vulnerably, as we should each and every Sunday, no matter the topic or wherever we're reading in our Bibles on our own. We've come to this topic of divorce in Mark 10 today because we finished Mark 9 last week. If you're visiting with us, you should know that. We aim to take God's word on its own terms And part of taking it on its own terms means that we preach through books of the Bible. There are 66 books of the Bible, and the gospel according to Mark is one of them, and the one we're working through right now. That keeps us from from only going to the topics that we want to talk about. It keeps us from avoiding topics that we wouldn't want to otherwise talk about. And since we're talking about how Mark is a book, and how each passage is set within a context around it, we should ask ourselves, why is this topic, divorce, here at this point, at this time in the gospel according to Mark? Did that question come to mind for you? Maybe as you read the passage before this morning, or this morning, or as we read it together, did you think, I've been here studying Mark with with this church for a while now. I, I didn't expect divorce to be the next thing. Maybe some of you would have stayed home if you knew. (laughs) Well, it's not here in Mark 10 simply because it's what happened next. A lot of things happened next that aren't in one of the gospel accounts. It's also peculiar because Mark doesn't have too many teaching sections, unlike Matthew and Luke. So you wonder why this topic and why here... Mark could have used any parable or maybe the bread of life sermon from John 6. That would have been nice. Also, Jesus has had run-ins with religious leaders before. 
On the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised they pop up again. On the other hand, they're popping up here in this section of chapter 8 to chapter 10, which is so focused on the disciples. It's focused on Jesus' three predictions about his coming death and resurrection. But its placement here isn't, isn't clumsy. Liberal scholars say, eh, this is just Mark's clumsy editing. It doesn't really go here. I don't think so. I think it actually helps us to understand the passage better when we see how it fits with what's around it. So let me offer quick some three reasons, three reasons why this passage fits beautifully right here in Mark. First, marriage is a test case for discipleship. It's a test case for discipleship. And discipleship has been the topic du jour, you could say, in these recent chapters. Starting with chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus said, Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. In chapter 9, verse 33, the disciples began debating which of them was the greatest, what the order was. And then Jesus told them that they must be last. They must be servants. And then he taught them about the seriousness of sin and hell. And then pops up marriage and divorce and remarriage. I think Mark is saying in a roundabout way, you want to see what it looks like to, de to deny self, to take up your cross? Stay married. You want to see what it means to not jockey for power or care about who's greatest but instead serve? Stay married. You want to ruthlessly fight sin? Try marriage. Stay married. Secondly, divorce, especially in Jesus' time, was a prime way in which the least of these were pushed aside rather than received and welcomed. Remember from last week that Jesus used a child as a teaching moment, right? He used a child there to talk about the least, those who are not the greatest. He said that the disciples must receive and welcome them. These overlooked ones, these disregarded ones, the lowly, at least in their culture, not so much in ours. Well, notice down in your Bibles that in chapter 10, right after this divorce passage, it's children who pop up once again. And again, the liberal scholars say, oh, again, this is clumsy editing. Surely these child passages were supposed to go together, and Mark just clumsily inserted a divorce passage between them. Or... Or, he's more sophisticated than that, he's communicating something. Children, the lowliest, the disregarded, the overlooked. When we think of divorce, we don't think of it as a gender issue. In first century times, it was completely a gender issue. Women didn't divorce men. Men divorced women. That's the question the Pharisees ask. Is it lawful for a man to divorce a woman? They wouldn't have asked is it lawful for a woman to divorce a man? It was unheard of. It would be like a square triangle. It's impossible. So what's Jesus doing here as he situates this between these children passages? He's elevating women. He's acknowledging them that though in their culture were overlooked and disregarded and easily exploited and mistreated, first and foremost through Frequent and convenient divorces, left to themselves, hoping to get married, but without any means of providing for family. Thirdly, divorce is a test for Jesus. Remember, the Pharisees asked that question as a test, a test. And that should remind us of the ongoing and even mounting opposition to Jesus. It was way back in chapter 3 that the Pharisees began conspiring how to destroy this Jesus. And we know where Jesus is going as he's walking along the way. He's not aimlessly walking. He's heading south. He's going to Jerusalem. He's said twice already so far, there I'll be rejected and killed and I'll rise on the third day. This specific question the Pharisees ask in chapter 10, verse 2, related to divorce, should connect a dot in our thinking, if we're reading along carefully with Mark. 
Remember John the Baptist lost his head, literally, when he said that it was wrong for King Herod to divorce his wife and marry his brother's wife. You can read about that in Mark chapter 6. Get this, John the Baptist was killed for preaching on divorce and remarriage. So I'm hoping just to make it out alive today. That'll be good. (laughs) But surely the Pharisees have this in mind. They're conspiring to destroy him. John was killed for preaching against divorce and remarriage. They're trying to expose what they suspect is a conservative view on divorce and remarriage. They're trying to get Jesus to go public so that he'll die. Now we're ready to dig into our passage in Mark 10. If you look at your sermon notes page on the back of the bulletin, if you're a note taker, you'll see today I want to point out three parts to our passage and then I want to suggest three kinds of takeaways from our passage. This, is, this topic is such that it really deserves its, its own section, maybe one-third of the sermon or so for us to really think through the takeaways or implications of what we're seeing in the passage. First, three parts to our passage. And under that, first, a debate about divorce. Jesus gets to the heart. There's a debate about divorce in verses 2 and following. The Pharisees came up and they, they tested him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them with a question. What did Moses command you? What did he command you? Well, he said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They're referring to Deuteronomy 24. We're going to turn to that passage in just a minute here. But but before we do, look at the wordplay that's going on in verses 2 through 4. Essentially, the Pharisees are asking Jesus, do you think divorce is permitted, allowed, And then Jesus says, well, what did God command? Not what did he permit. What did he command? It's an open-ended question. He wants to see where they'll go with it. Of course, he knows where they're going to go with it. And they do. Tellingly, they respond, Moses allowed a man. You see? Permitted. Commanded. Allowed. He allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce. They're, They're looking for the loophole. They're looking for permission. They're not looking for obedience. So now let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. Turn back there. It's important because here, this passage of Deuteronomy 24 becomes the center of the debate between Jesus and these Pharisees. It's what they go to when they think of divorce in the Old Testament. Or marriage, even, for that matter. What's going on in Deuteronomy 24? Look in verse 1. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's the key phrase, some indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away out of his house... Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, there were two schools of interpretation going on in Jesus' day regarding this passage. Named after two rabbis, there was the stricter school of Shammai, which interpreted that key phrase, some indecency, as unchastity, marital unfaithfulness, adultery. That's the indecency. But then the more liberal Hillel school of interpretation emphasized some indecency. And by that they meant any indecency. And they meant any indecency. If she ruined the food, you could divorce her. Literally, that's in a first century document. If she spoils your dinner, you may divorce her. If her menstruation goes too long, you can divorce her. If she starts to get old and ugly, you can divorce her. If you find a better one, you can divorce her. On and on it went. 
We know what the Pharisees thought about this because in Matthew's account of this same story, Matthew 19, they asked the question more specifically of Jesus. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? For any reason at all? Well, back to Mark 10. Turn back there. Jesus doesn't even debate the exception whether this indecency is any indecency or unchastity, marital infidelity. We know his belief. But instead of answering that question, he gets to the heart of the matter, which is the heart of Deuteronomy 24, why it was there, why why Moses wrote it. And it's the heart of these Pharisees' question. Verse 5, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. It's because of your hardness of heart that thing was there in the first place. Deuteronomy 24 wasn't encouraging divorce. It was limiting and regulating divorces that were already happening around them. The certificate mentioned in Deuteronomy 24 allowed a woman to remarry. It meant she was free. She could then be cared for by another. That was limiting divorce. That was, that was relegating, uh, uh, regulating divorce. And then also in 24, you have this thing going on. It's hard for us to understand exactly what's going on culturally there. But apparently Deuteronomy 24 prevented a husband from sending off his wife, perhaps to another man, perhaps to an older, wealthier man who would soon die, and then you get to bring her back. Or from, literally one of the old scholars says, keep the man from pimping her out. I love it when I find things 300 years old that could have been said yesterday by different people. Deuteronomy 24 was trying to slow down divorce, to limit the number of divorces. It wasn't articulating a loophole. It assumed the exception that a man can divorce an adulterous wife. But then it gave restrictions, a certificate and you can't whimsically take her back. It's a big deal. And all of this was because of the hardness of their hearts. Of those at the time of the writing of Deuteronomy 24 and of the Pharisees with their assumptions and questions to Jesus in Mark 10. Now in Matthew's account of the same passage, Jesus goes on to acknowledge the exception of adultery. He says divorce is wrong except in cases of sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness, infidelity. But in Mark, that exception is not there. Many have wondered why. Did Matthew add it? Not likely. Did Mark take it away? Well, he was probably written first. I think it was probably so assumed to be true that Mark didn't think it needed to be recorded. Everyone knew that that was an exception that that was a permissible divorce. And besides, without it, Mark keeps things punchy, doesn't he? It's pointed in Mark. Mark is able to keep us focused on the reasons for asking about divorce and the place you go in Scripture when you think of marriage and divorce. So when they ask Jesus, is divorce okay? And when he asked them, what did Moses command? They went to Deuteronomy 24. That was their primary text. That's where they had their loophole. But Jesus had a different passage in mind altogether. One also penned by Moses. This leads to our second point. Instruction on marriage. Jesus goes back to the beginning. To the garden. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation. And then he quotes from Genesis 1.27. God made them male and female. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he stops quoting, and he comments on Genesis 2. He explains the implication it has for divorce. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. Notice Jesus' brilliant strategy here. They asked about divorce. He talked about marriage. 
They wanted to go to Deuteronomy 24 for a loophole. He takes them back to the garden to talk about God's primary intentions with marriage. Not a passage couched in the hardness of heart to try to stem the tide of divorces. But back to the beginning, before the fall even, to show God's heart and his mind when it comes to marriage. And what do we learn about marriage from Genesis 2? Well, actually quite a lot in a short amount of space. We learn from Genesis 2 that marriage is a divine, not a human institution. It's a creational, not cultural institution. We learn that marriage is needed and good. Verse 18 said, it's not good for the man to be alone. We learn that marriage is complementary. Husband and wife go together. They're not the same, but they complement each other. Even physically, they were made to go together. And thus, this is between a man and a woman. God defines marriage. He did from the beginning. He marks out its parameters, not the state. This relationship is intimate. The two become one flesh no doubt alluding to the marital bed. We learn from Genesis 2 that marriage is both sudden and progressive. It's sudden in that leaving father and mother and clinging to another, a woman, a wife, that's immediate, that's wedding day stuff. And they're now one flesh. But they also continually and hopefully progressively cling to each other. It's a lifelong job description. 19 years into marriage, hopefully Sarah and I are clinging to each other in more one flesh now than we were in our first year of marriage. It's progressive. And it's permanent. We don't learn that from Genesis 2, not explicitly, but Jesus, with divine commentary, tells us that it's true. He says in Mark 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's permanent. It's covenantal. It's not consumeristic. That might be a good diagnostic question for a struggling marriage, for your part in a struggling marriage. Am I having covenantal thinking right now or is this consumeristic thinking right now? So much of what our culture calls love is simply romance and attraction wrapped up in consumeristic convenience. But here is covenantal love according to Song of Solomon. Yes, it's wildly romantic, but it is so because it's built upon rock-hard determination, commitment, resolve, and covenant. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. It's relentless. It's resilient. It's as strong as death. It's it's as fierce as the grave. Now, thirdly, Jesus raises the stakes. There's a warning about divorce. Jesus raises the stakes in verses 10 through 12. The disciples back at the house ask him more about this. Verse 11, he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus took it up a notch, didn't he? The disciples clearly realize he took it up a notch. In Matthew's account, they say, well, then no one should marry, right? Then no one should take that risk, right? Of course, they're wrong, but don't miss the point. When one wrongfully divorces and marries another, it's like adultery. It's as though the bond of marriage wasn't broken in the first place, and it's cheating, I could talk more about that, but we need to move on to the takeaways. There are three kinds of takeaways from our passage I want to talk about today. The first is remaining questions. 
You might have remaining questions about what it means that if you wrongfully divorce and marry another, that it's like adultery. Why would I say like? Well, I don't know. It's one of the remaining questions. One of the ones I'm not going to answer today. There are many remaining questions, I'm sure, for many of us. And of course, it's not just the problem of one sermon. No matter how many sermons we would give to divorce, each of us would probably have stories, cases that we would want to, to ask about, talk about. And we want to help you do that. We, we want to be here to answer any questions that you have. We want to be able to point you to good books if you have questions on this. There's no way in one sermon or more we could answer or anticipate all the questions that you might have. So let us know how we can help. But I do want to try to answer one or two questions that may be the biggest and most important before we move on. You might be thinking, okay, Jesus said that divorce is only permissible in a case of adultery. Aren't there any other permissible reasons for divorce, though? You might be thinking already. 1 Corinthians 7 is the answer. Yes, there is. Turn there. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. There are two exceptions for divorce being permissible in Scripture. One is given by Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. It's except for adultery, that divorce is sin. In 1 Corinthians 7, when an unbeliever chooses to leave a believing spouse, that believing spouse is free. Free to divorce, free to remarry. Verse 10, Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, hit pause there. This isn't saying that what follows isn't inspired. It's simply Paul's man-to-man, people-to-people advice. He's, He's saying that the earlier stuff, the Lord, not I, was actually spoken by Jesus in his earthly ministry. And then the stuff that follows after verse 12 is stuff that Jesus didn't say in his earthly ministry, but Paul sees it as an inspired application of Jesus' teaching for a new problem. A new problem. Read on, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy or set apart, has some distinct blessings because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, not set apart. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. But how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now we have to think clearly about how this fits in its first century context. That's where it was first written. It was written to Corinthians in the first century. It wasn't written to Americans in the 21st century. And remember, these Corinthians in the first century were first generation Christians. These were pagan Gentiles who heard the gospel as adults, and they got saved. And sometimes a husband would believe, and the wife wouldn't. And sometimes a wife would believe, and the husband wouldn't. That's problematic for any marriage. It's trouble or difficult for any marriage. Imagine how difficult it would be in the first century. This teaching comes on the scene out of nowhere, disrupts all of life. These Christians are persecuted, they're hated, they're seen as anti-Roman. Things are said about them that are untrue, like they, they, like they well, we won't go on to all of them. There's a big list in my head right now, and I'm, I'm not going to go through it. So they had all kinds of things they said about these Christians, and, and, and now your wife's one of them? Or now your husband became one of them? You can imagine that some would just say, forget it, I'm out of here. I don't want this Jesus thing. I didn't sign up for that. So this isn't talking about someone who calls themselves a Christian and isn't right now acting like a Christian because they've 
emotionally separated. That's not here in this passage. This is talking about an unbeliever who says, I'm not putting up with this Jesus stuff anymore. I'm out. Many scholars think that Paul was also needing to write about this to the Corinthians because the Corinthians had recently become concerned that perhaps sexual relations with an unbeliever, married unbeliever, could have some sort of unpurifying effect on them. You know, if they're unpure and I'm pure and we do this holy thing, this intimate thing, do we get unpureness? But Paul writes to say, no, that's not a problem at all. In fact, it goes in the opposite direction. They can have some measure of purity or benefit by being in the same home with you, believer. They may even share salvation one day because you stayed in the home, believer. No, no, no. Purity goes that way, we hope. Impurity won't go that way. Don't worry. How do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So if the unbelieving wife will stay, you stay. If they will stay, you stay. If they won't, so be it. You are free, not only to go, but also free to marry another. That's one question you might have, another exception in the Bible. Yes, it's, it's for adultery, and yes, for an unbeliever deserting his spouse or her spouse. Another major question we'll do more quickly is, what if I'm divorced and neither of those scenarios or exceptions were involved in my divorce? Well, what the Bible would say to you is, can you still pursue reconciliation? Is that possible? Is that person still unmarried? You're still unmarried? Then pursue it. You say, I'm not there. Pray about it. Ask God for help. Ask him to change your mind and your heart about this. You say, well, they're not there. I'm there, but they're not there. Well, pray for them then. Pursue reconciliation, if at all possible. What an amazing trophy of God's grace it would be if more divorces ended in happy reconciliation and remarriage. If you can't reconcile with your spouse, let's say you've sinfully divorced, then remarried, what now? You stay as you are. You remain as you are. God doesn't want you to add heartache upon heartache. He doesn't want you to divorce again simply to remarry. Or worse, for you to try to get your spouse to divorce someone they've married so that they can now remarry with you. And No, it's water under the bridge. We're not in the business of multiplying divorces in order to get back to first marriages. Many questions, I'm sure many more. Let us know how we can help. But let's talk about many implications. There are many implications for our passage in Mark 10 today. I want to just rattle through a bunch here. I'll think of different categories of people and then rattle off some ideas that come to mind about how this passage of Mark 10 is applied to us. For those who are, who have been divorced, know this. Not all divorces are sinful, but all are painful. Keep taking your hurts to Jesus. Keep taking your pain, your worries, your grief to Jesus. Your friends may not want to talk about this, they might, they might think you need to be done with this and move on. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, sympathetic to our weaknesses. He doesn't get tired. Take them to him again and again and again. Sinful divorces and the innumerable sins in the midst of a divorce are not too much for the blood of Christ. They are not too much for the blood of Christ. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Jesus forgives all who truly confess their sin, who repent and cling to him. His grace, praise God, is greater than our sin. That said, many people, many Christians, have seemed to prove the ungenuineness of their faith through the path of divorce. 
many have marched down the path of divorce stubbornly and belligerently with fingers in their ears and mad as hell at everyone around them. And like any stubborn sin, like any willful, unentreatable sin, a lack of repentance should mean a lack of assurance. Those go together, friend. As there's a lack of repentance, so there should be a commensurate lack of assurance for you and for your brothers and sisters around you. Do not presume. Don't play with divorce. Not all divorces are sinful, but all divorces are littered with sin. And even the most clearly lawful divorces, permissible divorces, can still be handled sinfully by an innocent party. So guard your heart. Be suspicious of yourself. Things may be less black and white than you think. Don't think that because you had a right to divorce your spouse that you can think about that spouse or talk about that spouse any way you'd like. Don't think that because you had biblical grounds for divorce that you didn't sin in the midst of your divorce. For those of you considering divorce right now, the D word has come up in your marriage. You're asking, maybe an elder at the church, maybe a friend, you're asking, is it okay to divorce? Is it okay if I do? Well, let's talk about marriage. That's what Jesus did, right? The Pharisees asked, what about divorce? Can we divorce? Can they divorce? Jesus said, let's talk about marriage. You're counseling someone who's asking about divorce. Here's a great strategy. What do you think marriage is for? Is it for self-fulfillment? Getting our needs met? Getting regular sex? Having two incomes or some other division of labor? Or is marriage for Genesis 2.24? Two becoming one. Painfully becoming one, slowly becoming one. Yes, sparks are a flying. Yes, at times it feels like two magnets with opposite poles pushing against each other. But two becoming one is God's plan for marriage. Reflection of his glory and his goodness, his communion, his love, his sacrifice, his forgiveness. Not all divorces are sinful, but all divorces have immeasurable, irreparable consequences if you're considering divorce you got to think about this very few people when considering a divorce actually dare to list all of the possible complications that might come and all of the many negative consequences that will come and you might even google the word divorce as you're thinking about it and there you will not be helped i googled divorce this morning and I learned how to get a divorce for 149 bucks. Low-cost divorce, three easy steps, or painless divorce. It was a webheading. Painless divorce. Don't trust yourself when considering a divorce. Don't think that you'll interpret the key passages on this objectively when you're in the throes of of. Con- Contemplating divorce. Don't trust your reasoning right now. You need good, godly Christian friends around you. You don't need new counselors who will tell you what you want to hear. You need your old friends who you used to think are faithful and true. They are. Be careful with sentiments like, God doesn't want me unhappy. Or God doesn't want me to suffer. Don't assume that God ever wants you to deal with your suffering by hitting the eject button. You know he doesn't work that way. Other trials have come into your life. God apparently is okay with suffering. This one, there's a convenient eject button these days. That doesn't mean you should hit it, though. For those of you who aren't talking about divorce, but you're in a struggling marriage, may I say... Get some help now before it's too late. I can't tell you how often we elders only hear about a marriage problem when it's on the very brink of giving up. They're already talking about divorce 
and they give it one last ditch effort to call a pastor and talk. And often it's too far gone. There's too much to undo. There's too much that can't be undone. Get help early. Be vulnerable. Get help before things are irreparable. And if you say, I think we're already there. It's irreparable. There's no hope for us. Well, then hear this. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We're talking about the God who raises the dead. He can resurrect dead marriages. He can do the impossible. Or maybe your marriage struggles are more low-grade than that. Maybe it doesn't warrant a meeting with an elder just yet, at least for thorough counseling. But I wonder, are you in a community group? Do you have Christian friends close enough to you to notice some possible holes in your marriage? To ask you some questions about it, even if they don't? To point out some things they see? Oh man, how we need each other. We are blind to our own sin. And sin is sneaky. We need the church. To the unmarried here, determine right now that if God gives you a spouse someday, divorce will always remain completely out of the question. It's a non-negotiable. You don't go there. We won't entertain it. Make a covenant between yourself and God right now. I don't know who it'll be. I don't know how, how hard it'll get. That won't be on the table. As you explore the possibility of this or that person as a potential spouse, choose wisely. Don't think, well, I know this guy has a, a few big problems, but I'm getting up there in age, and what if this is my last shot? What if, if the next chance doesn't come around for three more years? What if the next guy doesn't even ask me out for three years? Don't go there. Don't marry desperately. Don't keep trying to make it work, at least when it's before marriage. When it's after marriage, yes. But before marriage, oh, it, I get nervous when I hear people say, oh, we're just giving it one last shot. We're really trying to make it work this time. No, that almost never turns out well. Learn from Jesus in Mark 10. There is no undo button with marriage. There's divorce, but there's no undo button. Now that's for potential spouses, for those who are marriable age. Let me talk to any teens or parents of teens that might be here. This passage shows us the backwardsness of divorce, right? The upside-downness of divorce. I wonder if one implication for teens and parents isn't that you may want to rethink whether recreational dating at the age of 14 or 15 or 16 or 17, with almost every relationship ending in breakup, isn't essentially practicing for divorce. When you're starting to date at 14 or 15, you have at least four to five years before you're of marriable age. So that's either four to five years with the same person and hence passions are ramping up and growing frustrated or there's a string of breakups in your wake before you finally get to that one someday that you marry. You might think that you're practicing romance in a dating relationship at a young age, but you're not. You might be practicing for divorce, especially when you can jump out of relationships so easily, so flippantly, for superficial reasons, without even consulting anyone. You didn't tell mom and dad that you got the new girlfriend. You're sure not going to tell mom and dad when you dumped her. Think of those teenage breakups. I sadly had a few. You wake up one morning and decide that you just don't like him or her anymore. Or you start noticing someone else, someone better. Someone prettier. Or you just get bored with them. Or you decide that this relationship thing is actually kind of hard. It's too much work. Christmas is coming up. Better get out now before I have to get her a present. <laughs> Guilty. 
Or maybe more noble, a girl says, well, he's just not growing like I am. Or we're going in different directions. Or we can't get along. Aren't these eerily familiar? Teens, you teens may not know this. Your parents do. We've all heard these things. These are usual reasons, common reasons for adults to divorce. And those aren't instincts or impulses that you want to get used to at 15, 16, 17, 18. To the marrieds here, let us not assume that divorce is impossible for us. It's not impossible for you or your wife. The slippery slope between normal conflict and divorce is indeed a slippery one, a sneaky one. Don't think your marriage is above it or immune to it. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I remember that once Sarah and I had some tension between us, some issue, and it's extremely rare for us to not settle it, no matter how long it takes before we move on to something else, but this time, for whatever reason, we hit pause and did other things. I think I went to the garage. That's where I usually go. I remember thinking, I need to go fix this. I don't even know how. I don't know what I did wrong. I need to go fix this. And then you kind of dialogue with yourself, right? Almost like the, like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on this shoulder talking to you. And this side said, uh, why do I need to go and make it right? She knows where I am. And then the other side said, because you don't want a divorce. It was a moment of clarity, right? Yeah, this is how divorces happen. That's not where they start. But they can lead there. They can go there. You stay in the garage too long. And you could be stepping towards divorce. Keep short accounts with one another. Don't get used to bad habits with each other. Don't think that barely staying married is necessarily a success story. The goal isn't not divorcing. The goal is a growing, beautiful, happy marriage. That path isn't easy. No, you fight for it. You work towards it. You fight to survive. Yes, and even more, though, to thrive, right? So read a marriage book if that's you, if you're coasting. Remember that marriages don't coast like an escalator going down. You need to grow. Grow in communication. Grow in your lovemaking. Grow in your sacrifices. Grow in your affections. And for all of us, married or not, young or old, let's not look inside our own hearts to try to determine what's right. Let's not look to the culture around us to determine what's right or what's acceptable or how things should be defined or what's important. But let us look to God, to Jesus, and to his holy word. One more thing to do. We talked about some remaining questions. We talked about many implications. And third, one primary focus. One primary focus. Don't forget about the man in the center of it all in Mark 10. Yes, Jesus teaches about divorce. And we should go from here thinking about marriage and divorce. But we shouldn't go from this place only thinking about the treachery of divorce or the beauty of marriage. We should remember who this is. He's the Christ. He's the King. We should remember where he's going in the story to Jerusalem, to die and be raised. And not just to die, but to die for sins, to be a ransom for many, to lay his life down for us. He's the supreme example of servantry and sacrifice and humility that fuels marriage, that heals marriages. Don't forget that marriage is his chosen illustration for his love and his sacrifice. You see that in Hosea. You see it in Ephesians 5. Hear it again. Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What a mystery and glorious mystery that is. That more is at stake for us than just a successful or unsuccessful marriage. More is at stake for you than just your own home's happiness or your kid's well-being. The living proclamation of the gospel of Christ and the glory of God is at stake in our marriages. God's honor and ways and his purposes and the testimony to the world is at stake in our marriages. His marriage, his marriage, he made them husband and wife. His marriage is a living proclamation of forgiveness, of love, of sacrifice, humility, of unparalleled unity and dependence and companionship and intimacy. Marriage is beautiful. And it's beautiful because it points to something infinitely more beautiful and more lasting. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who died in our place, the Messiah, the suffering servant, our friend, our husband, our Lord, our King. Let's pray to him for help right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming. Thank you, Lord, for your teaching. We thank you, Lord, for your righteous living that you obeyed all your Father's commands in our place. And we thank you for your dying, that you've died in our place to forgive our sins, to cleanse us and wash us white. We thank you for your rising and your ascension, for your exaltation. Thank you, Lord, that you are ours, that you have set your affection and love on us and served us to the end. Help us, we pray, Lord. Help us, we pray, to live in light of it. Give us wisdom in our marriages. Give us wisdom for healing and reconciliation where that's needed. Give us your peace. We're thankful right now that your spirit, Lord, is at work in individual hearts in ways that no preacher, even Bible passage being read, can can possibly work. We pray you would do your work, Holy Spirit, as we once again behold the wondrous mystery of Christ our Savior and King, upon the cross and risen for our sins. We pray in his name. Amen.